Well, if you have your copy of God's Word with you, uh, open up to the book of Exodus this morning, and we're going to continue along uh, in our series looking at chapter 2, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. We've been going uh, pretty slow, kind of working our way through the book. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to sort of pick up steam and uh, uh, be going through like chapters at a time. And so, uh, so this is sort of be the, one of the last weeks that we're going to sort of uh, be very, very slow with this. Um, otherwise, we would uh, be in Exodus for like the next two years uh, at this pace. And the goal is to hopefully uh, preach through uh, the entirety of the book. Um, if you're joining us online, uh, let me just say, I know some of you guys, our live stream didn't work in the first service, but we're glad that you have joined us in this one, and uh, we had the network uh, just sort of, uh, we had to pray some demons out of it uh, in between services, and so we apologize uh, for that. So the text this morning, beginning in verse 11, would you follow along with me uh, as we read down through verse 15, it says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you the prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Recently, my wife and I had a conversation um, that evolved around uh, labels. It evolved around sort of getting put in, in groups and in groups of people and types of people. We, we have all kinds of labels that we, we label people. Uh, you're, you're the vaccinated, the unvaccinated. You've had COVID. You've not had COVID. You're a Democrat. You're a Republican. You're a success and you're a failure. You know, growing up, if we hear certain labels like you're a winner or you're a failure, before long, as we repeat those things in our minds and as we hear them from people, we'll start to believe it. And so whatever the label is and whatever the category is, the more we hear it ascribed to us or even the more that we tell ourselves these things. And look, we, we raise our children this way, right? We raise them to believe that they're, they're winners and that they're capable of anything because we want them to believe that and, and own that and then go and to live their lives uh, as capable people that, that win in life. But, but what happens when all you do is experience failure? What happens when all you do is, is you lose? And you can't seem to, to get ahead and, and nothing really sort of changes from you and you, you can't catch a break. You start to believe the lie that, that you are what it is that you're feeling in that moment. Well, today, the, the hero of our story, if you will, experiences and he embraces failure. He embraces it and, it and it becomes a part of, of who he is. And, and so God, through his grace and his kindness, addresses Moses when Moses does something quite awful and he tries to hide it and he tries to get around it. God begins to, to deal with him in a couple of ways. Now, there are some things at this point in the story that I want you to notice about Moses that we don't necessarily get from here in Exodus. But when we look at the broader scope of, of what God has written specifically in the book of Acts, we know a couple of things about Moses at this point in his life. There was a character in the book of Acts named Stephen. He's the first martyr of the faith. 
And Stephen was, was accused and brought before the, the religious leaders in Acts 7, and eventually he becomes stoned. And we know the, not he doesn't get stoned, but he gets stones thrown, thrown at him, right? And, and, he, and he loses his life, right, for the sake of the gospel. But before Stephen dies, he says some things about Moses, and he begins to talk about Moses before these religious leaders. And one of the things that Stephen begins to address with them in verse 22 of Acts 7, he says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. And so Moses, as he begins this point in his life, Stephen later goes on to say that Moses, at this point in his life, he was about 40 years old. 40 years old. But Stephen says that, that Moses was mighty in, in what he was doing and he was mighty in how he spoke. And we know the answer to why that is is because Moses grew up and had the finest education that money could buy. Because he lived in the house of the Pharaoh. And so at this point in his life, he, he knew what to say and how to say it. He was mighty in all that he did and all that he said. He was courageous. And he was 40 years old. We know that he was mighty in, in word and deed. We also know that he was courageous and he was compassionate. For the writer of Hebrews says this about Moses at this point in his life. In Hebrews chapter 11, he says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now think about how remarkable that statement is by the writer of Hebrews. Moses was given up, if you will, by his mom, and he was taken into Pharaoh's home, and he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And yet the writer of Hebrews says that Moses walked away from all of that. Why? Because he began to see something that was greater than just being labeled an Egyptian or a part of that family. But rather he wanted to be with his people, God's people in particular. And so he walked away from what he knew and all that he had and that had been given to him. But I want you to notice in the first couple of verses something that's going on in this moment. And I think at this point in Moses' life, he's instructive for us and teaching us really what not to do. There are men in, in Scripture at times and women where we say, hey, go be like this person and do what they're doing. And yet there are also times when we look at some men and some women in Scripture and we would say, hey, listen, let's learn how not to, to do some of the things that they did and make the same mistakes that they did. And so I want you to notice Moses grows up and he's 40 years old at this point and he goes out to be with his people and he sees their burdens. And what does he see at the end of verse 11? He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people. And then notice what Moses begins to do. He sees injustice and he sees a wrong, but he goes about it in the wrong way, seeking to correct it. And so Moses, he looks this way and he looks that way. One of the first things that, that we see from Moses in this moment and in, in his failure is he begins to act impulsively. And failure often comes in our lives when we act impulsively. When we don't think through the, the thing that we're about to do. 
When we don't uh, pause for a moment and, and seek to seek the Lord, he, he looks this way and he looks that way and he sees no one. So he strikes down the Egyptian and then notice what it says he does. He hides him in the sand. There's this famous reformer by the name of John Calvin. And John Calvin, when he talks about this verse uh, to disagree with, with one of the greatest reformers, he believes that in this moment Moses was justified in doing what he did. But yet he stands on, on one side of the line and most Hebrew scholars would contend that in this moment Moses was 100% not right in his actions and what he had done. And I tend to hold that view according to this text. And the reason why is because I think the scripture, it teaches us that. When you do wrong or you're about to do wrong, what is the thing that you do? You look this way and you look that way and you make sure that nobody's watching and nobody can see you. But if you've done something wrong, what, you, what we seek to do in correcting the wrong oftentimes is we try to bury it and we try to cover it up. We try to change the subject. We, we create another distraction. And so we look to the right and to the left. And if no one's looking, then we participate. And then if we participate and engage in the sin, then what do we do after that? We seek to hide it and bury it as deeply as we can. But here's the, the trick with that. You and I cannot bury our sin deep enough to get away from it and to cover it. We can't dig a hole deep enough in the ground. We can't look to the right and to the left as if no one sees us because there is nowhere that we can go that people may not see us, but God always sees what we do and how we do it. God sees even deeper to the action. He knows the motivation and the heart and the reason behind why we actually did what it is that we did. And so Moses, in this moment, in teaching us about failure, failure often comes when we act impulsively. And so Moses sees this injustice before him, rightly so, and forgets in that moment that God also sees what's going on. For 430 some odd years, God sees the injustice that is going on. And he sees that his people are under the heavy hand of the Pharaoh. The taskmasters have been assigned over the Hebrew people and they are weighing them down with everything that's within inside them to defeat them and to minimize them and to make them feel as less than human beings. Moses acts impulsively and failure often comes when we act impulsively. Number two is this, failure often comes when we try to act on our own strength. It often comes when we as a people try to solve the problem ourselves. When you get hired at a job, whether it's a, a nonprofit or a for-profit, whether it's an organization, we, we typically look, when we look for staff people, I, I look for people that are go-getters. People that can say, I say, here's the vision. Now you go execute the vision in your own way and, and you run. And because I don't want to be the guy that's sort of pulling you along and, and dragging you along. So, so you, you get out front. Here's the vision. Now just go and get it. Go take it. Go do what is necessary. And my role and the elder's role, we just want to give you everything that you need in that moment to succeed for that season in your life. And then we want to get out of the way as quickly as possible. 
And oftentimes when we are going about a task, whether it be at our our jobs or in our homes, and we're trying to solve things, we oftentimes will come up with some of the, the very best strategies in human existence. And we'll think through how it is that we're going to accomplish what it is that we're going to accomplish. And we go through a process of strategic planning and we look ahead in the future. We've got a one-year goal and a three-year goal and a five-year goal and a 10-year goal. And here's how we're going to get and accomplish all of these goals that are before us. And we strategize. But what we often forget, because we are so gifted at times with strategy, is that we are laboring in the midst of that in our own strength and with our own wit and with our own wisdom and with our own giftedness. And Moses, in this moment, he sees this injustice. He acts impulsively, but he begins to act upon his own strength to correct the injustice before ever having sought the Lord. And so he takes the life of this man and he hides him because he's ashamed and he knows what he's done is wrong. But the deal was God saw it and apparently someone else saw it. Because the very next day when he sees two arguing and fighting, and they say, what are you going to do? Are you going to put us to death like you did the man before? They, they saw it. Even Moses, in his wisdom at this point, grown up in the, in the finest schools, being a very wise and winsome man, couldn't hide his sin, much less from God, but he couldn't even hide it from others that were watching around. He looked to the left and he looked to the right, but somebody was watching and he didn't know it. And so he acted impulsively and he acted on his own strength. But I think also what we see in the moment of this is that oftentimes failure is going to come when we are more concerned with what others think rather than what God thinks. Before he, he sees the injustice and what is it that he does, he looks because he wants to see who else is looking. I think oftentimes in our own lives we, we are afraid to do the right thing and to go about it in the right way because we're scared about what other people might think of us. I remember in the first few years where I became a senior pastor and I was uh, receiving criticism, some rightly so that was my fault, some that was not my fault, but you just get hammered as a 29-year-old that can't even grow a beard at the time and you think you know everything and man, you just get knocked left and right and, and most of it was, was my fault, but there were times where it wasn't and I was critiqued in the very beginning um, about my preaching. Now I'd hear like very harsh words sometimes and, and I would process that in, in certain ways and it made me pout and I got mopey for, for a season. And, uh, and I remember one day I was lamenting about it and sort of complaining about it and didn't really realize that I sort of slipped into this habit of doing it. And one of my elders just sort of pulled me aside and he said, are you doing what God told you to, to do? Are you saying what God told you to say? Are you full? Are you seeking to be full of the, of the spirit of God? And I said, I'm doing the very best that I can. Yes, I believe that I'm, that I'm listening to God. Then he said these words to me at 30 years old at the time he said then who cares what they think he said you are caring too much what they think and that stuck with me and a decision was made in that moment and I realized this about myself that I was so worried about if people were going to be happy and, and I was one of those guys that could do an event as a student minister. I'd have 200 kids show up but if one kid had a bad time then the event was ruined for me. And I couldn't look past that. 
If I received one complaint about something that we did, I couldn't look past the, the one complaint. And what that's indicative of in your heart and in my heart today is that as a person who cares too deeply about what other people think and is not enough concerned with what does God think. And was he pleased? You want to know how we evaluate the metric of, of worship here at Travis? We, we do take feedback all the time, and we want to grow in our feedback and, and know our people. But, but ultimately, what, what we do when we step down from this stage as, as the preacher, as, as the worship leader, as the teachers in the classroom, it's not so much what did you think or what did I think or what did my spouse think or my kids think, but rather is what did God think? And was I faithful in that moment? Did, did I accurately portray what it is that, that God says in his word and that he has spoken to, to his people? What does he think? Friend, that truth applies to you as well. That it's not so much what the people in your, in your home think or your children think or your coworkers or in your fraternity or sorority, the school that you go to. What matters the most is what does God think with what you are doing with your life? And am I following in his, his purpose for me and, and in his plan for me? But failure often comes when we are more concerned with what others think than what God thinks. Moses was too much concerned with what other people were thinking in that moment. And it, and it led him as a, as a worrier. It led him to, to do something, to take the life of another individual. But I want you to notice this. Failure comes oftentimes when we attempt God's work in the wrong time. You see, God had, had promised the Hebrews that he was going to free them from slavery. He had promised them that he was going to deliver them. But, but here was the deal with God, and here's what's true of us today. God's going to deliver them in his own timing. And he's going to deliver them in his own way. Do you believe that for yourself too? It was true for the Hebrews in this moment. Do you know that God is going to deliver you, but he's going to deliver you not in your timing, but in his and oftentimes we experience failure and frustration because we are a people that oftentimes we get ahead of what the Lord wants us to do. And so Moses, he gets ahead of when the Lord is going to deliver his people and it ultimately costs the life of another person who was doing wrong, but two wrongs don't make a right. Failure comes when we attempt God's work in the wrong time and in the wrong way. But if I could say just one thing to you this morning that perhaps is the most important. When we read that Moses dug the grave and tried to hide the body, we recognize that perhaps one of Moses' greatest failures was not the fact that he, that he made the mistake, but rather it was the fact that he tried to cover it up. He made the mistake, but then he made it worse by trying to cover it up. And so failure comes when we try to cover our sin and we try to hide it from God and we try to hide it from others. So the scripture is really clear about this. In James and in 1 John and elsewhere, it talks about the freedom that comes when we as a people walk openly as a people and we confess our sins to him and to one another. That there's freedom that comes from that. And so it's why one of our core values is our, our circles and our, our community groups and our, our Sunday school classes. Like That's one of our core values, circles more than rows. Why? Because it's really difficult in the midst of, of worship and someone preaching to start confessing your sins to one another in your row. 
And so the place that we do that is, is either in our, our small groups or maybe it's with a group of, of one or two other ladies or, or one or two other men and, and we confess. Why? Because there's freedom in the confession. There's, there's freedom in the, in the owning up and, and failure comes when we try to cover up our sin and we try to hide it from others. But I think, too, what we see in, in Moses' life at this point as he, as he takes the life and he flees and he knows that he has defied the, this most powerful man in all of the world. And it says that in fear he runs and he, and he flees, rightfully so. So here's what this teaches us about control. Everything Moses was doing after he took the life, he was trying to be in control when he sees the injustice. He was the one trying to right the wrong and not being led by God. And then he tries to hide it, but that the hiding becomes unraveled because someone else sees it. And so eventually it leads him to a place of, of fear and desperation. And so he leaves the only home that he's ever known. And so what this says to us this morning is that if you are going to try to control things, if you are a controlling person that, that struggles with always having to be in control, you are probably one of those people that that control is indicative of the fear in your life that consumes you. Of the anxiety that, that is sort of underneath the, the curtain, if you will, because of your wanting to always force yourself to fix the situation and to control it. Controlling people are some of the most fearful people alive. And so Moses, he flees. Because in that moment, the more he tries to control the situation, the more the situation becomes uncontrollable. But here's the good news. Moses flees. And God leads him to a, a well and, and somewhere in Midian, way out away from Pharaoh's grasp and his, and his arms. And he, and he pick up in the text and we, we keep reading in verse 16. It says, now this priest of Midian, where Moses ends up, has seven daughters. And they come and they draw water filled with the troughs to the water of their father's flocks. Verse 17, the shepherds <coughs> came and they drove them away. But Moses stood up and he saved them and he watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul... Excuse me. He said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and he drew water for us to water the flock. And so this man invites Moses into his house. He gives him his daughter. They get married. They have a son named Gershom and all is well for another 40 years. <coughs> so Moses commits this act of, of murder at 40. And then we know elsewhere throughout scripture that God keeps Moses out in the desert for 40 years. The famous uh, evangelist D.L. Moody, he says this about Moses' life and what God is doing sovereignly in Moses' life. Forty years old, he takes the life. Forty years old, God keeps him out in the desert in Midian to raise the family. Why does he do that? Well, D.L. Moody says this, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking that he was somebody, living in the court of the Pharaoh. The most powerful man in all the world. Anything Moses wanted was at his fingertips. And he spent the first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He's now going to spend the next 40 years of his life learning that he is absolutely a nobody. And he's going to live in obscurity. Out in the middle of nowhere. 
away from the power and the, and the accolades and the, and the things and the possessions and the treasures and, and the most powerful man in the world. For 40 years, Moses thought he was someone. Now God is going to humble him for 40 more years and remind him that he's a nobody. Why? So that when Moses hits about 80 years old, God is going to bring him back into the land. And God is going to use that somebody who thought he was somebody who became a nobody. And then D.L. Moody says this, and now God is going to spend the next 40 years discovering, Moses will discover that God only uses nobodies to accomplish what he wants. And so the truth of Moses' life was Moses needed a little bit of, of humbling in his life to go from one position of power and influence to one position of obscurity to become a nobody. Listen to me. It is much better for you and I to humble ourselves rather than to be humbled by God. It is a much easier thing to do. It is a, it's a much better way and road for us to travel on, to humble ourselves before the Lord, before the Lord has to humble us. And so, all the years, 40 years of education and and wisdom and care and the finest schools in all the world. Moses, for 40 years, he spent in that wilderness, leaving all of that prestige, that experience in the wilderness was a much better schooling than his education and what he learned from all the Egyptians in all the world. Why? Because this is when Moses began to learn to walk with God. This was when Moses began to realize that God, in his goodness, that he redeems failure. You see, we talk about labels in the beginning, being identified in some way and, and whatever that category is, but, but truth be told, not all labels are bad. Because you see, because of the gospel and because of Christ, I don't have to be defined like Moses wasn't defined. I'm not defined by my failures. I'm not defined by my mistakes. But truth be told, I'm not even defined by my successes and my wins and my trophies. You know, I remember when I was in high school, I, I coveted so much to, to, to get a letterman jacket. Those were things back then. I don't know if they're things uh, now or not, but it was a big deal when I was going through high school in the 2000s. And I wanted that letterman jacket because I wanted my patches and I wanted to be able to wear it around. And at my school, we still wore all that kind of stuff. And I cared so deeply. And those patches would get sewed on for awards. You thought, man, this is so awesome. And, and you know what I realized? That as soon as I graduated high school, not even my mama cares about that letterman jacket anymore. Like it becomes meaningless. And it becomes just a thing that's in a closet that you see that I guess one day you show your kids. Like, look at what dad used to do back in the day. And then they're like, oh, that's really cool, dad. Like, can we go play and do something else? But the thing about the gospel is it gives us a different label and, and a different group to belong to. You see, it's not successes or failures, but, but what the label that God gives us is that we now, as a people who have repented of our sins and trusted in him to, to be our savior, we now get his identity imputed to us given to us. 
And so my identity and, and who I am, it's not rooted in, in my friends or my, my family. It's not rooted in my vocation and what I do. It, it's not rooted in, in what cars I drive or the house I live or the, or the other friends that I have. But rather, my identity, like Moses, it's not a failure. It is one as a child of God that has been adopted by God and brought into his family. And I am Christ and he is mine. And so God gives me that. And so I wonder today if in this room there are some of you that your identity would be like Moses at this point in his life, that you feel like a failure. Maybe you grew up with a harsh dad or mom that you, you never could live up to their expectations and you, you have believed the lie of whatever it is that you heard or you didn't hear from them. And you've taken that on yourself. Can I say to you that, that Moses is a picture of, of one who has come. Moses is not our savior in this moment, but rather Moses points to a, to a greater savior who is coming at some point and who has came and he has redeemed the world and reconciled, reconciled the world to himself. He has reconciled you and I to him when we call upon his name. We believe that he did what he said he did. And so he restores us. And he gives us new purpose and a different identity. And he changes us so that we don't become what it is that we think we hear or what it is that we think that we are, but we are his and he is ours.